Would you pray with me? Father, you are light. There is no darkness in you. You are truth. There is no deceit in you. You are just. There is no partiality in you. You are righteous. There is no wickedness in you. You are holy. There is no corruption in you. And we praise you for who you are. We confess, Lord, that all we like sheep have gone astray, that at times we love the darkness, we deceive, we show partiality, we act wickedly, and our souls have been corrupted by sin. We praise you that even when you found us in such a sick and evil state, you sent your son Jesus to shed his blood that we who were far off might be drawn near and called righteous in your sight. Give us unity in this church, Yahweh, unity that is focused on your mission and your gospel. May we love sacrificially, and may that love cast out any fear that exists in this body. God, continue to rend our hearts for the global health crisis that is affecting us all in different ways. For the healthcare workers who are still serving on the front lines, as well as all of the essential workers, we pray for protection and endurance. For all the small business owners, whose livelihoods are suffering tremendously. We pray for provision and encouragement. For all the people of color who seem to be affected by this disease at a disproportionate rate, specifically, Lord, for the Oglala Sioux tribe in South Dakota and the White Mountain Apache tribe in Arizona. We pray that they would have access to the resources they need and for a wave of hope to rush over them. For all of the families mourning the loss of loved ones, we pray for comfort and peace. And for our leaders, Mayor Bennett, Governor Brown, Oregon's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Harganani, President Trump, Vice President Pence, President-elect Biden, Vice President-elect Harris, and all the other leaders making difficult decisions. May they all follow you and submit to you as king, and may they have your wisdom as they lead. God, none of what is happening or what will happen is a surprise to you. You are sovereign, and all of your ways are just and true. The path before us seems daunting and unsettling, but we know that you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. May your steadfast love satisfy us that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. May your will be done in us and in this church, and may to you be all honor and glory and power forever. In the name of your perfect and holy Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 You can have a seat. And you guys can add uh, Tyler to your prayer list, because as he is a teacher at Shamawa, he is interacting with kids over Zoom that are his own students that are greatly affected. Some of them even uh, have COVID currently, have lost loved ones, and so... Please be praying for Tyler in that role that's very important in those kids' lives. Uh, this morning, I want to start off our time uh, of being informed and formed by the Word of God by speaking about the most recent COVID-19 restrictions. Uh, and then after I address that, we're going to focus on what holds us together in unity, the gospel of Christ. 
And so the first thing I want to say is that you guys have done so well. Uh, you guys have just done a fantastic job helping maintain the guidelines, even though I know uh, some of you may not even agree with them. Uh, so much so that by God's grace, we've not had any active uh, COVID-19 cases in this church so far. Um, and that's, uh, that may change, but uh, thus far, we praise God for that. Um, would you guys agree? Praise God for that? Yeah. We appreciate you stewarding your lives wisely outside these four walls so that we could be safe within these four walls, uh, knowing that your actions outside have effect on people inside. Um, that's what makes this most re recent restriction difficult. We as elders are like you. We're fatigued, we're exhausted, we're sad, just as many of, as, uh, many of you are. Uh, and this last seven months has been trying to say the least. But even in that, our hope is in Christ and our eyes are set on an eternal perspective. We recognize that restrictions can't hold back the gospel. Uh, and so our strength is not to be tossed to and fro, but to stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Secondly, as, we, uh, as much as we wish that we could have a voice in setting government policy as it pertains to our church gatherings, we are unfortunately not in that position. And so what we decide to do in the future cannot be as proactive as we would like as elders but has to, by nature, uh, be reactive to the guidelines presented to us by the government. At the same time, we want to be clear that our decisions as a church, that is Jesus-ruled and elder-led and congregationally responsible, need to be just that, Jesus-ruled. And so I want to remind us of the scriptural principles and truths that have been guiding us as elders and should guide all of us as Christians in the midst of this pandemic. Uh, you don't have to write these down. If you want to, you can. But there are four main principles that have been at the core of our decision-making. The first one is pretty simple. It's the greatest command. Love God and love one another. So love one another, especially the vulnerable within our community. And we get this from many places, obviously, in Scripture. But one of the core ones is Philippians chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And guys, that even means those who we might disagree with, especially those. Uh, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And this was the mind of Christ, right? Secondly, we want to have a willingness to have our own rights impeded to help someone else not stumble over the gospel. Okay, we're willing to have our own rights impeded so that someone else doesn't stumble over the gospel. This is more implicit in what I'm about to read you uh, than explicit, but the great example is uh, in Romans 14 there. Do not, for the sake of food, in this case it was uh, eating food sacrificed to idols, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And so in this case, we have to think about the gospel and, and how we might make others stumble by our actions in relations to uh, responding to the restrictions. Third, we have a desire to obey our king and his command to worship as an assembly. Okay? This is core to what it is to be a Christian. We fight hard against this idea that being a Christian is just kind of existing out in the ether and never interacting in a local body. And so we can think of Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 that says this. Um, it says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So loving others, being willing to have our rights impeded in order to protect the witness of the gospel, desiring to obey our king and the command to meet, 
And then lastly, desiring to obey, uh, to be obedient to God in submitting to government authorities, okay? And this is a big one. Um, this is one that is in Romans 13 is one of the places. Uh, it says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. And it goes on from there. And this last one is extremely important in uh, context, because throughout the early church, there was this idea that because the kingdom had been inaugurated, you can just kick out all the institutions of an earthly realm, right? We don't need to follow anybody. And so they started in, in the uh, book of 1 Corinthians and Romans say, do we even need to be married? Do we even need to follow the rules of family? Do we even need to follow government? And this was part of Paul's response during a time when the church was being persecuted by the government of Rome. And he was telling the church that they needed to balance their zeal for the law of God with a respect of the law of the God-instituted government, okay? And so there's this tension there. And this brings heavy weight to the decision as to whether or not we submit to the government on any given law or directive, not just the ones around the pandemic. And so in yet another emergency elder meeting uh, yesterday, of which there have been far too many over the last seven months, our poor elders are probably exhausted, uh, we discussed various options based primarily upon these biblical principles, as well as the practicality and potential risk of options. The options we looked at hinged on the underlying question of whether we continue to accept these orders as they come, or if we reasonably push back on them. To push against the governing authorities, dear friends, is a very weighty decision. It is one on which we must be fully assured that it is the absolute right thing to do, because it is pitting the obedience of God with the regard to meeting together with the obedience to God with regard to submitting to governing authorities. It is one that we are not taking off the table, but it is also a decision that cannot be rushed, and we must be open to wise, loving, and biblical discussion. Once done, if we were to go that route, it is not possible to reverse. And so we want to follow the biblical truth that a wise person is patient in decision-making. The reason we are even entertaining it, because I know it, it might even be a shock to some that we're entertaining that, it's because we so deeply treasure the command to gather and we want to make sure that we are operating in the fear of God and not the fear of man. And we want to fulfill our calling to be set apart in love and holiness. Now, this season has caused harm in the spiritual, emotional, and mental state of many of the people in our congregation. And so we don't want to flippantly alter our gatherings without thinking about that as well. And so we need to step above politics, and I'm calling all of us to realize that while their opinions are contrary to each other, we need to be praying for and respecting President Trump, Vice President Pence, President-elect Biden, Vice President-elect Harris, as well as Governor Brown and others. They're doing what they think is best. And so we need to pray for them and honor them in our words, in our social media posts. And if we come to a wise, loving, and biblical conclusion to push back against any government orders, we will do so in a manner that is respectful and honoring. And this is not cut and dried because this is not a clear case of persecution or limitations solely due to faith practices. If it were, this would be an easy decision. But the government has made clear that the imposed limitations on meeting are not due to why we meet, or what we do when we meet, but because of public safety. 
And we have historically submitted to the government's guidance in public safety prior to COVID-19 in areas like building occupancy, building codes, and fire safety. We need to make sure that if we push back, it is because the situation absolutely warrants it in submission to God's word. So, for all these reasons, we would like to ask for your prayers and patience as we continue to pray and discuss this weighty matter as it not only affects our immediate gathering, but most likely how we gather over the next five to 24 months because we know that these orders will come and go as they have been. Additionally, we'd like to hear from all of you and your thoughts on this topic. Proverbs 18.13 says, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Uh, Jeanette, can you go ahead and move to the next slide? It's not, my remote's not working. Yeah, you might need to restart. So, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is to his folly and shame. And so we each, as elders, have individual wisdom and expertise in various pertinent areas, but we want to hear from the body. And so, to be both wise and patient in our decision-making, we're going to be switching to gathering over live stream for just the next two Sundays, and then we will make a decision beyond that. Uh, these will be full services with worship, reading, prayers, and teaching. And then we're going to have on December 1st at 7 p.m., uh, the elders are going to be hosting a Zoom call. So that's December 1st at 7 p.m. We're going to be hosting a Zoom call for any member of the church. So if you're a member, you can attend this, who would like to ask questions or give comments to us so that we can take it into account as we determine if or when it is appropriate in these circumstances to push back against governmental directives. The link for that meeting will come to you via email this week, so keep an eye out for that. And based on that discussion, the elders will communicate out to you all the ongoing strategy of our church for the foreseeable future. Now, as discipleship groups and our rooted youth group are all under the restriction of 25, we will continue to have these groups with the appropriate restrictions of masks and social distancing here at the building only so that there is appropriate airflow and space and so that it is clear that these are religious meetings and not just social gatherings. All discipleship groups, regardless of previous decisions or conversations, even our meeting the other day, uh, small group leaders, uh, all discipleship groups now need to schedule to meet here at the building. As some of our community groups are under 25 and some are over 25, what we're going to do is just ask for community group leaders to pause community groups for two weeks, and we will take those into account in our final decision on how to move forward. So even if you were scheduled to meet here at the building in the next two weeks, we're asking you to postpone those meetings for community groups. Now, if you have immediate questions or comments that are not able to be held until that meeting on December 1st at 7 p.m., you can email elders at missionsalem.com, okay? Please do not email me because I will just end up forwarding on to all the elders. This is an elder decision, not a Hans decision. Now, that may seem like I'm shirking responsibility, but it's simply that I am one of five elders and carry the same equal weight as the rest of them. So elders at missionsalem.com if you'd like to uh, say something that you can't hold until that December 1st meeting. Please recognize that part of loving your brothers and sisters is to realize that there are various and contrary opinions in this body on what we should do. I know this is a shock, but not everyone thinks exactly like you. <laughs> Love each other well by giving grace to one another in this area, okay? Um, and so hopefully that makes sense. I know I talked really fast and, and kind of put some, a bunch of information out there, but hopefully you guys can kind of grasp where we're at. We want to be wise and loving and make a sound decision that's in the fear of God and not in the fear of man. And recognize that if we do decide on one thing or another, it will be because God commands it, whether it's to love one another or whether it's to meet together 
um, love one another by live streaming uh, and not being together or to be together. So we'll make that decision. Amen? Amen. All right. Thank you. So now with that, I appreciate that. Uh, I appreciate your encouragement. Let's now jump into and take a look at the core of what unites us. And I recognize that I am verbose and I talk long, so I'm going to try and get done in the usual time. But I really think it's important that we now focus on the good news of Jesus Christ that transcends generations and governments and pandemics and all the rest. So let's go ahead and open up to Mark 15, uh, verses 16 through 32. Mark 15, verses 16 through 32. Brothers and sisters, I do realize that many of you are angry. (laughs) All of us are deflated and feel confused as to why people that have different viewpoints or opinions than we do can't come to the same conclusion we have. And that's for anybody on the spectrum of opinion. In this church, we have people all over the opinion spectrum that are image bearers of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, and desirous of being obedient to God, but are somehow arriving at different conclusions when it comes to secondary things like politics or to wear masks or what to do with a pandemic. And that is why, even though I have a short time this morning uh, to, to look at the word, I think it's absolutely necessary for us to look at the core of our faith, the gospel, to have our minds and hearts adjusted. And so today, what we're going to be looking at is in Mark 15, the suffering of a servant and the coronation of a king. The suffering of a servant and the coronation of of a king. Now, as a benefit, we're going to be reminded that God is glorified when we choose to put down our opinion on secondary issues and align with one another at the foot of the cross. We're so stoked that we got these new logos up on the wall in the foyer in here because they remind us that we have a cross that is at the core of our faith. Okay? And so we, we lay down our opinions, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, why is this important, especially right now? Well, recognize, dear friends, that, that you can have different opinions on secondary issues and still be a Christian. I know that's a shock to some, but you can. And so if we have opinion A for whatever the topic is, and we have opinion B in the church, guess what? You're divided. Now, does Christ divide? He does, yes, in a certain sense, uh, people who are unrepentant. But within the church, his goal is to unite at at the cross and resurrection of Christ. And so if we look towards that cross, if we move towards that cross, what we will eventually find is that we begin having a divine unity that nothing on earth can cause. And all of a sudden, we start to become one with one another. And this, brothers and sisters, is the core of our witness of the power of the gospel. Part of the reason that the world should look at the church and go, you guys are weird and different, is because we can actually unite. Why? Because we all agree on the gospel. And so this is core to why I want to talk about this today. Because I just want to fight tooth and nail for unity in this church. Do you? We should fight tooth and nail for unity around the gospel. And so the first part of the gospel that we see in Mark today, as we look at Mark 15, 16 through 32, is that we're going to see that Christ is what draws us together by what he did for us on the cross. So let's take a look there at Mark 15, 16 through 32, and we're just going to read through the text. It says there, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, 
And they clothed Jesus in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they've offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The first thing that we see this morning is that as Savior, Christ was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Thus far in the Passion account of Christ, we've seen numerous references to Old Testament ideas. We see Mark using statements that act as biblical hyperlinks to take us back to the Old Testament and recognize the fulfillment in Christ. We've talked before about the speech act of the Bible, that things were spoken and prophesied, acted out in the gospel of Christ, and then interpreted in the New Testament. And this is what we see here. We just saw in the last couple of weeks Jesus standing before various leaders, the high priests and even Pilate himself, being falsely charged, and yet he stood firm. Why? Because he had a trust in the sovereign justice of the Father and trust in the mission that he was sent on, so much so that he didn't even defend himself. And in doing so, we see echoes of scriptures like Isaiah 53.7, and that's what I mean by hyperlinks. It takes our mind back to these things. This is Isaiah 53.7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53 is a section of scripture you guys may be well acquainted with called the section of the suffering servant. The Jewish religion views it as an allegorical statement on the historical suffering of Israel, but we as New Testament believers look at it and see in every word and every section prophecy of the one who would come and take on the sin of mankind. Why don't you guys look there with me? Go ahead and turn to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah 53. And we're going to look at a good portion of it because it is the prophecy that is fulfilled here in Mark 15. Take a look with me, if you would, at Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 8. And I want you to, in your mind, hear the words of Isaiah and and see it in your mind's eye as Jesus was beaten and whipped, taken to be crucified. His clothes stripped of him. It says in verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised 
and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed. His wounds we are healed. All sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own. On him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? To look upon Christ as we see him in Mark is to see one that was twice despised and rejected by his own people and by the Romans, full of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It would seem by reading his story in Mark that he was smitten and punished by God, that there was some curse upon him. And yet all of this was to endure the pain and suffering of taking on the sin of the world, your sin and my sin. You see, you and I are descendants of our first mother and father who had been created and blessed with perfect unity with the Creator. They were given the call to be image bearers, to reflect the goodness and glory of God. But instead of doing that, in their arrogance and pride, like you and I have often, They chose to remove God from the position of being the author of right and wrong and good and evil. And even there in Genesis 3, 6, we see Eve taking her own opinion, her own belief and experience as truth above God's truth. It says there in Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Their opinion was not based upon God's word, but upon their own perceptions and feelings. And following that opinion, without first checking it against God's truth, led her to not only divide from the heart of God, but also to drag another human being along with her in her sin. Friends, this is why it's so important that we align our will with the will of God before we open our mouths. We follow in their footsteps every time we forego the truth of God's word and decide for ourselves based upon our opinions, experiences, and feelings. And this, dear friends, is what leads us in unrighteousness and separates us from God. Friends, if you have not pre-decided that the word of God is inspired and true and the only source for us to know what is good and evil, then you will fall. If you think that you can make up your own buffet Christianity where you choose and pick and choose what's in the Bible, you will fall. The Bible is God's inspired word. It is our only ruler, our only law. And we look to that and all other truth flows out of that. And this, dear friends, when we go against this and when we go against God's truth is what leads us in unrighteousness and separates us from God. It's what produces words and actions that do not represent the heart of God, but betrays our own hearts of iniquity. Friends, if you'd met me 10, 15 years ago, I would be the first person ranting and raving across the internet about my political beliefs in regard to what's going on. And if you think I'm overly respectful to people of varying opinions, it's because I have been convicted that opening my mouth about political issues and causing disrespect towards governing authorities is against the word of God. And I've even been convicted of that in the last year. We have to be people that follow the whole word of God. 
left in our own sin of self-righteousness, we would rightly die and be destined for an eternity separated from God and at odds with every creature made in his image, without hope and under his righteous judgment. But the good news of the gospel is that although this is what we deserve, right? Do you deserve that? Do you deserve death and hell? Yes, I do. This is what we deserve. The grace and mercy of God has brought us something else. It's brought us this suffering servant. You see, God stepped down into human flesh and became a man, one who is without sin, living a perfect life so that he, as a lamb without blemish, could become an atoning sacrifice for you and for me. And just as the Old Testament pictures an animal sacrifice taking on the sin of the offerer, Jesus took on your sin and mine. And in Isaiah, we see the promise. And then in Mark, we see the fulfilling act of the lamb led to the slaughter. Jesus has borne our grief of sin and carried our sorrow of rebellion against a creator, our creator. He's led to be crucified. He was killed and pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And Yahweh laid upon Jesus the sin of everything you have ever com committed against God in rebellion. And by this work, suffering the wrath of God and man that we could not bear, Jesus' wounds brought us peace and reconciliation with the Creator. Look at Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. It says it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Uh, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Not only did he die for the sins of the people who were spitting on him and beating him and crucified with him for their rebellion, calling for him to be crucified, those that abandoned him, those that yell at him, but he died for you and me 2,000 years later for the sins that we do against one another every day of our lives. Because of the perfect faithfulness of God, it was the will of the Trinity to employ the work of the cross upon the sacrifice of Jesus as he was crushed. His soul made an offering for your guilt and mine. And out of his righteous sacrifice, the righteous one made sacrifice and atonement for you and for me. He caused us to be righteous in the eyes of the Father. He alone was fit to be the bridge to link a sinful mankind with the holy God. And he alone proved that his work was accomplished by his resurrection from the dead three days later. Friends, whatever had your attention as you entered this building this morning, it pales in comparison to the beauty of the cross and the power of the resurrection. Looking into the face of the gospel makes all else melt away as we recognize what God has done for us. But not only did he act as our perfect suffering servant savior, he was also shown as our king. You can write that down. As king, Christ was crowned and lifted high in glory. In our text from Mark, we see the fulfillment of Isaiah again here, but this time from Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. We see this idea, if you look there in your Bible at Isaiah 52, 13, it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. 
As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations, and kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Isaiah is clear that the suffering servant will be high and lifted up. This is a word for exaltation. And these are the words of coronation, as if we were looking at the coronation of a queen or a king in our current day. And in line with what we have learned many, many times in Mark, it is this enthronement, and in this enthronement, that Jesus will undo the splintering of mankind that caused nations and ethnicities to war against one another. In the gospel, he takes what was splintered and divided and makes it whole again. And in Isaiah 53.15, it speaks to the fact that he will sprinkle many nations, And this is symbolic of a purification that fulfills the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that his offspring, Jesus' followers, would be a blessing to the nations, right? That Jesus and his, his followers would be a blessing to the nations. And Jesus would do this in such bold fashion that kings' mouths will be shut because of Christ. Jesus alone will ultimately be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And so no matter what's happening in our lives, guys, no matter what restrictions we have, we know and can trust the sovereign word of God that he will have the ultimate say and his kingdom will reign. So as we noted last week, just in the passage right before in Mark, Mark uses this phrase, king of the Jews, five times to speak of Jesus. In our text from Mark, and you can go ahead and turn back there now, go back to Mark 15. In our text from Mark, we see not only the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies in Jesus, but we see the very acting out of the coronation of a holy God at the hands of a rebellious and mocking humanity. If you look there at verses 16 through 20 again, you can see that he is being enthroned, but it's done in mocking and sarcasm and anger and hatred. The scene that Mark paints is most definitely one of a commanding king standing before his subjects who should be offering him praise, but are instead offering him scorn and hatred. It is a perfect picture for you and for me. We've been purchased by the blood of Jesus, but how often do you find yourself, rather than offering him the praise he deserves, you're offering him scorn and rebellion because even though he has died for you and purchased you by his blood, you choose to step into sin. How often do I see that in my own life? Now, many scholars believe, based on a growing body of archaeology, that this scene is most likely taking place at a location called the Praetorium, a word that means the Hall of Judgment that sat in the center of Herod's palace. And in this place of judgment, man is fulfilling that age-old sin of our first mother and father by putting the blame upon God rather than accepting it ourselves, putting God in the wrong. In so doing, God in fleshly form is providing his character of steadfast love and faithfulness and mercy and grace by handing himself over to the sinfulness of man. If anyone could ever stand firm in their rights and in truth, it would be this man. And yet he chose to give himself up in love. In their actions, they thought they were filled with Um, sarcasm and rage, but in fact, they were actually proclaiming the truth that this man standing before them, this willing, suffering servant, was actually the holy God. 
John makes this connection in his gospel, in the other gospel, uh, the gospel of John. He says, uh, has Jesus quoted as saying this, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus could say this because he was being enthroned as king of kings and lord of lords, and he knew it would be at this moment of crucifixion. And by his victorious resurrection and atoning death, he was establishing an everlasting kingdom into which he could, be, he could welcome anyone who's willing to accept his free gift of salvation and walk in obedience to his sovereign reign. What an amazing love we have lived out before us here in the book of Mark. And what thankfulness and gratitude it should produce in us that God condescended to a creation that hated him and pushed him aside so that he might die and resurrect to once again ascend to the everlasting and victorious throne over which even sin, death, and hell have no power. And it's in this weakness and humility that Jesus actually achieves the height of power and authority. And so in our text from Mark, we see some paradoxes. And I want us to just take note of those. Not only do we see this suffering servant and this king, but we see the paradox of supposed weakness achieving the power of salvation. And there are two paradoxes specifically that show both this suffering servant and king being crowned. And if you're unfamiliar with that word paradox, it's when two items that seem on the surface to be contrary, when looked at in depth, they often produce a truth. And Mark shows us the paradox of the gospel in this weird upside-down nature of God's kingdom with two ideas. First is the, that we see the Lord of hosts belittled sarcastically as king of the Jews. We see the Lord of hosts belittled sarcastically as king of the Jews. You've got this Lord of hosts, this powerful position, belittled sarcastically and made fun of as this quote-unquote king of the Jews. And as you read through your Bible, especially as many of you have followed us through Isaiah, uh, you see God often referred to as the Lord of hosts. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh Tzavot. Okay? It's Yahweh Tzavot, Lord of hosts, a name that is full of military connotations of being commander of the powerful angelic armies in heaven. You see, the Bible shows Jesus in the book of Revelation is coming with the armies of heaven with a sword coming from his mouth that slays anyone who's against him. And he has that power. And guys, here's the deal. I think often as Christians, we think, well, he was weak the first time, but he's powerful the second time. No, guys, he was just as powerful the first time. In the first coming, he was just as powerful. Look at what he says in Matthew 26, 53. This is when he's taken and arrested. He says to his disciples, he says, do you not think, or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? This is thousands of angels, right? But yet here in Mark, we have the picture of this powerful being standing as a man, beaten, mocked, and abused before a battalion of Roman soldiers. The Greek, here word, uh, the Greek word here that renders battalion is around 600 men. This was a mass event. 600 soldiers standing around Jesus, watching him be falsely coronated and mocked and beaten and bruised. And it was before this military might that Jesus is crowned with a crown of thorns, placed in a soldier's cloak meant to serve as a royal robe of purple, and given a reed with which they first beat him. The reed was meant to serve as a symbol of his authority, and yet it was used as a tool of mockery. And it was here before this military battalion that Jesus was led to be lifted high in crucifixion. 
the very act that it would accomplish the death blow to the kingdom of darkness, the hatred and murder of the adversary, and would once and for all silence the power of death and hell, and in a sense even put him enthroned as majesty over his very enemies that were crucifying him. Friends, in this picture, we see the paradox of supposed weakness achieving the power of salvation. But then we also see Jesus, the righteous God, enthroned with the wicked. Righteous God, enthroned with the wicked. Two seemingly contradictory ideas. We see Jesus stripped of his clothing and crucified between two rebels. They weren't just robbers, they were insurrectionists. They were possibly co-rebels with their friend Barabbas, as we looked at last week. And in this moment, Mark paints Jesus as perfectly fulfilling the idea of the suffering servant. We read it earlier from Isaiah 53.9. They made his grave with the wicked. In Isaiah 53.12, it says, After they divide him a portion with the many, divide the spoil with the strong, it says down below, he was numbered with the transgressors. Here we see the paradox of a righteous God enthroned with the wicked. Jesus was perfectly innocent, perfectly sinless, perfectly obedient to the Father. He did not deserve to be placed with two rebels. But it was in this horrific crucifixion. He was placed at the center that the disciples standing at a distance would see what the cross was finally all about. If you remember back in Mark 10, two of the disciples had asked to sit on his right and his left, and he said, can you drink the same cup I'm going to drink? Yes, we can. We can do it. And here they see that in order to gain power as the King of kings and Lord of lords, it first required the suffering of a servant, dying for your sin and mine, dying for those disciples that abandoned him, dying for the very rebels on either side that were spitting at him and yelling at him. Mark perfectly foreshadowed in Mark 10, the fact that Jesus would become that suffering servant, taking on the sins of the world. All of this was so that he could be enthroned as king, having dominion over all. We see his supposed weakness achieving the power of salvation. What an amazing picture we get. What an amazing God, an amazing Savior. What an amazing gospel. Amen? When we see the weight of the truth of the gospel, friends, all else should pass away. And we should be left with an awestruck desire to follow after this gracious, merciful, faithful, and loving God. Friends, when you consider the gospel, do you go, oh yeah, yeah, that happened? Or does strong conviction overcome you that this man who did so much for us, this God-man, this God that did so much for us, should be responded to with amazing submission and obedience. And so once again, Mark draws us as listeners and readers into the story, and we're introduced to one other character in whom Mark, whom Mark wants the listeners to identify, Simon the Cyrene. And in this character, Mark speaks, first, uh, speaks to the first century church about enduring and persecution, but he also speaks to us. And he says one last thing that I want you to write down this morning. As those who follow Christ, we too must be confronted by the weight of the cross. As those who follow Christ, we too must be confronted by the weight of the cross. You can see there in Mark 16, it says, They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Simon followed right after Jesus 
watching the blood drip down his back, his neck, watching his clothes be soaked with the blood that he shed for you and for me, hearing the taunts of the people around him, feeling the spit coming at him of people who were trying to yell at Jesus, watching Jesus be whipped and fall, all the while carrying the weight of the crossbeam that Jesus would be crucified on. And as those who follow Christ, we too must be confronted by the weight of the cross. This man, Simon, must have been well known for the church in Rome. Mark was written primarily to the church at Rome, and Mark makes this seemingly odd comment that seems out of place about Rufus and Alexander, but to the church there, they would have known them. That's odd to us because we're like, why would you mention them? But to them, they know them. And we get this from the letter to the Romans. In Romans 16, 13, it says that Paul calls the church elders to greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. And so many theologians, myself included, believe this is the same Rufus as here in Mark. And that's why he made this comment to them. Hey, guys, you know who this man is, he's saying. And this Simon is pulled in to carry the crossbeam that Jesus himself couldn't carry because of the abuse he'd already endured. And immediately the words of Jesus early in Mark should ring out loudly in our ears when Jesus said, in Mark 8, 34 through 35, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. In this character of Simon the Cyrene, Mark prefigures every disciple that desires to follow after Christ. To follow Christ, we must be confronted with the fact that an innocent man and an innocent God holy and perfect God, was sent to his death to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We must see the horrific and unjust nature of the fact that Jesus died in your place and mine. And we must look at the weight of it until we are confronted with the fact that a man who did that for you and me deserves to be lifted up as king and lord of our lives. How many of you are old enough to remember the Passion of the Christ when it came out a long time ago? I got past the quote from Isaiah at the very beginning, and I wept through the entire rest of the movie. It was odd because I was sitting there, and two seats over was the vice president of the company I worked for. I was an underling, and I was like, oh, I shouldn't cry in front of this guy. I looked over, and he was weeping like a baby too. And I remember watching on the screen in visual understanding what Jesus endured for me, my sin, what he took on because I rebel against the loving and holy God. And it just caused me to weep. I'm so thankful for the weight of the cross and the weight of what the gospel brings. In our age of wanting comfort, I think we often dismiss it and think, well, let's get on with the happy parts of the gospel. Get to the resurrection already. But friends, we need to focus on the weight of the gospel because that will often be what motivates us to walk forward in obedience to Jesus, not only as the suffering Savior, but also as the crowned king. We must see this, and we must bear the weight of it until we're confronted with the fact that a man who did that for you and me deserves to be lifted up as king and lord of our lives. And brothers and sisters, I suspect that no matter where we are this morning or what is bothering us, we need to come face to face as Simon the Cyrene did with the weight of the cross. When we come face to face with the weight of the cross and the amazing sacrifice that Jesus underwent to for, forgive all our sins, all of our desire to push aside his authority will fade away. When we come face to face with the weight of the cross, 
all the problems of the world that we think are impossible and overwhelming will fade away because they are not greater than his death or resurrection. No matter the circumstances we find ourselves in, we can trust in his sovereign plan to restore the world to right. And when we bear the weight of the cross as disciples of Jesus, we begin to understand that nothing, and I mean nothing, should tear apart the unity of God's people that was purchased at the cross. As I watch brothers and sisters in Christ yell at each other over social media and in riots and protests, my heart hurts because I think, have you forgotten the cross? What on earth are you yelling about? Have you forgotten the cross? We need to be reminded of the weight of the cross. And so friends, this morning, I just want to ask you some simple questions and just leave you with the weight of the cross. First, what thoughts, feelings, opinions, or fears, or maybe even politics, have you allowed greater weight in your life than the cross of the Savior? What in your mind and heart is clouding out and moving out the cross? And I want to press you today as we take communion to put it before the Lord and ask him to bring the cross back into priority. Secondly, when you think of the suffering of Christ as a servant, I want to ask you very pointedly, does it lead you to crown him as king of your life? Or are you still the authority? Is Jesus just fire insurance for you that when you die, you get to go to heaven? Is he your cosmic butler that's going to do whatever you want? Is he your political figurehead to back up your political agenda and beliefs? Or is he king crowned as Lord of your life? This morning, let's intentionally sit under the weight of the cross where we see the suffering servant and the crowning of a king. And then next week, as we step into the death of Jesus and we wrestle with this even more, we can start to begin to look to the resurrection that comes from the death. And we can wrestle with the fact that, yes, we have sinned and we are guilty and condemned, but Jesus is greater than our sin and he has saved us and reconciled us with the Father.